For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. How do we help students become confident readers? And what do all our students need so they can enjoy reading success, especially during this unprecedented time? Welcome to season three of Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. This season, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Scarborough's Reading Rope, a model that helps us understand the complexities of learning to read and helps us focus on evidence-based practices. Each episode will cover elements of the model, what it means and how it should impact classroom instruction. We've lined up a dream team of science of reading experts we think you'll really love. The science of reading movement continues to grow and at a time that is more important than ever. It's vital we focus on research-based practices to deliver classroom instruction that allows students to learn. If they aren't learning, we need to examine our practices. We may not know what changes are coming next, but we do know we need to stay connected, and learning from each other will get us through it. The more we learn and listen, the more we'll be prepared to lead. Our students are counting on us. Joining us for another episode is Sonia Cabell, Assistant Professor in the College of Education at Florida State University. We talk a bit about language comprehension, an often misunderstood concept, and explore the importance of the elements of the simple view of reading before formal schooling begins. It's always a pleasure to chat with Sonia. Hi, Sonia. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. It's always a pleasure. Um, you know, I'm not sure if all of our listeners, our listener base has really grown since the first time that you were on. I'm not sure all of our listeners actually know who you are. So I wonder if you could just spend the first little bit here talking about who you are and how you fit into the science of reading world. Sure. Um, I'm Sonia Cabell, and I'm an assistant professor at Florida State University. I'm in the School of Teacher Education um, in the Reading Education Program and I am faculty of the Florida Center for Reading Research. Um, And my work focuses on the prevention of later reading difficulties. I'm really interested in understanding how to accelerate children's language and literacy skills during the early childhood period. So I think about the preschool and kindergarten kind of range. Um, And I'm also trying to understand how to help teachers and parents foster this learning to lay a strong foundation for children early in their school careers. 
Wow. It's really, that's really, really important work. And we're so glad that you're here with us to talk about that. We're going to get into that preschool sort of age range in a minute here, but I know a lot of the work that you've done is related to language comprehension. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind just taking a minute to talk to our listeners about what language comprehension actually is and why it's so important for reading proficiency. When I think about language comprehension, you know, I, we, you know, we think about it in terms of the simple view or Scarborough's rope. Um, and we think about the ability to understand what is being said or read aloud. Um, and more technically, uh, a technical definition might be the ability to derive meaning from spoken words when they're part of sentences or other discourse. Um, I got that from Reading Rockets website. <laughs> <laughs> and but basically, when I think about language comprehension, I think about the contributors to language comprehension, and I think about the the language skills that children need to have, and that includes things like vocabulary and syntactical knowledge, um, uh, and uh, the academic language that's needed. I also think about uh, the knowledge that children need to really understand what they're listening to or reading. Hmm. And I think it's a little misunderstood, um, particularly when we're talking about it in relationship to reading proficiency, that when we talk about language comprehension, we're really talking about that ability to work in the oral environment first. Right, exactly. You know, it's, um, so if you think about, um, the simple view being, you know, reading comprehension is a product of decoding and language comprehension. That language comprehension sits in that oral language type of space. Yeah, it's uh, it's just, I think maybe because both, both have comprehension, it's sometimes hard to like extract the language element of it and remember that it's super important that we do that for kids um, in the oral environment, which makes sense why that's such a part of your work, because your work is really focused um, a lot anyway on this pre-K or the even the birth to age five range. Mm -hmm. um, so I would love for you to talk a little bit um, about that and how kids develop in those years and, and what are the things that help them become better readers? Wow, there is a lot there, Sonia. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see what we can do to unpack that a little bit. <laughs> so let's think about um, both strands of Scarborough's uh, role, both the language comprehension as well as the word recognition sides of the, of, of the puzzle here. Um, and the, one of the reasons this is really important to me to think about and, um, you know, in terms of thinking about what happens during the preschool period and looking at it in light of Scarborough's rope or the simple view of reading is that a lot of times when teachers are presented with these um, frameworks, um, they are thinking about school age formal reading instruction. But uh, Scarborough's Rope illustrates beautifully how strands come together mm -hmm. early on, you know, to lay a foundation. So I want to um, encourage people to think about those skills, which are precursors. Uh, these used to be termed emergent literacy skills, sometimes still termed emergent literacy skills. But the idea that is that that from birth, language and literacy understanding is already starting, you know, it's on a continuum, not all of a sudden children are beginning to read or all of a sudden that they're 
um, cognitively ready to read. Those were older conceptions. Um, but really the idea that these language and literacy skills start developing early on in our lives and lay a foundation for later reading and writing success. Um, so let's talk about each piece of the, the rope. Um, yeah. On the word recognition side, um, children um, begin to acquire some knowledge and understanding about how print works, that it moves from left to right on a page and from top to bottom. They uh, begin to have understanding of the names of the letters of the alphabet and the sounds that those uh, letters make. Uh, they also begin to understand the sound structure of language or developing phonological awareness. Uh, they begin to understand, for example, that the word dog is not only uh, some, an animal, but also is a word that, uh, that they hear and it starts with a d sound. So those insights about print and sound really lay the foundation for children's, children's later decoding and word recognition. And now when we're thinking about, let's think about the other side of it, which is language comprehension. Um, you know, we, you know, I spoke about just a few minutes ago that this includes development in vocabulary and syntax, morphology, phonology, pragmatics. Children are developing spoken language hmm. and that happens from birth. And, you know, lang spoken language learning is generally a natural process, um, but for reading, these language skills help students understand the meanings of words and the ways in which words and sentences are combined in written language, which is a little different than spoken language. Right. So I, when I think about that written language, I think about the language of books and schools, which some people talk about as academic language. Um, and academic language skills are things like articulating ideas beyond the here and now or inferential language. Um, being able to articulate a series of events, whether fictional or non-fictional or narrative language, um, or understanding a wide range of vocabulary and gr grammatical structures. So that's that academic language helps children be able to understand the formal structures and words in written language, which is different than our spoken language. Right. And so, so really that when we're talking about the language comprehension side, at least of that, much of this from birth to age five um, is to what the kids come to school with then is dependent on their experiences they have in those years in, you know, preschooling. Absolutely. You know, they're gaining knowledge about the social and natural world around them as well through their interactions with adults and siblings um, and through the books that are read to them through educational programming that they watch. Um, so those language interactions don't take place in a void right? We are talking about something. Um, we're learning about something. And that's where this background knowledge piece of the equation also comes in uh, to language comprehension. Um, before school begins, children are exposed to a rich, rich um, ideas about how the world works, you know. Um, and another, I think another a skill that goes into both the decoding and language comprehension sides that is often left out is early writing um, because that can help children exploring with writing even when children are three and four years old can help grow their both their decoding ability as well as their language comprehension and writing doesn't mean that the child has to be using pencil and paper it could mean that you write down their ideas for them 
and they mm -hmm. begin to understand how the written language works. Yeah, that's really interesting because in a few episodes, we've talked about this reciprocal nature um, of both reading and writing. And like mostly, obviously, um, after schooling begins, as we're starting to learn the code and then, you know, and how that helps reinforce that code. But what would this look like for a pre preschool kid that would be helpful for them in terms of the writing? Right. In terms of writing um, in preschool, so let's talk about that decoding piece, the word recognition piece, or all the precursors to that. So young children do enjoy exploring with um, pencil and paper or markers or with other writing kinds of tools um, if they see models of writing around them. And having this be a part of a playful, meaningful setting is important. So for example, um, there's some work that's been done in the past by Susan Newman and colleagues um, that looked at putting uh, writing um, kind of literacy tools, including writing tools, into play centers in preschool settings. Um, and then and just the use, just putting those tools in there did help students to um, more spontaneously engage with those tools. But then also when the, te when the teacher played a role and served as a, kind of a guide to that, that made it um, more powerful for children's learning. So for example, in a restaurant center, uh, the teacher might take a role of being the person making the, uh, taking the order um, and then writing down the order. And then the child might play that same role later on or filling out forms in a doctor's office center. So you could see mm -hmm. that there are many ways that writing could be involved where children are getting the opportunity to grapple with how the language works. And eventually they'll move, their writing will move from, you know, drawing and scribbling to writing with letter-like forms, uh, things that look like letters but aren't quite letters, to writing with random, seemingly random letters. And then finally writing with, when they start writing with um, invented spelling or letters that um, actually represent some of the sounds in what they're trying to write, it, that is a huge milestone where you're seeing that they're beginning to grasp the alphabetic principle. It's hmm. fascinating. And so it, you know, it seems like things that um, we've been doing in preschool with kids before, but maybe not with the awareness or focus that this is actually impactful to their literacy lives later. Would you think that's true? Yeah. Well, I would say that um, writing in preschools is happening a lot more than it used to. It used to not really happen. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of times um, teachers will include these kinds of uh, writing tools in um, centers and make those available to children. I think the piece that still might be missing um, is the how to how to scaffold that experience for children so that it becomes really at, at meaningful to their literacy. Hmm. Can you give us an example of what that might look like? Right. So let's say um, a a child is um, taking your order in a, in a restaurant setting, mm -hmm. and you say, "I what's something that you would order?" Oh, I'll have coffee, please. Coffee, okay. <laughs> and let's say the child writes um, on uh, toward the end of preschool, they write uh, C. Mm -hmm. Well, that is really exciting because they have just represented the k sound in the word coffee. Oftentimes it's uh, the salient sound. The first sound in a word is the salient sound for children. 
that they hear the most or feel the most on their um, in their mouth. And um, what you can do then is the teacher can scaffold that learning to hear some of those other salient sounds. So coffee, what other sounds become really stand out to you when I say coffee? And you can say it, you know, long drawn out like that coffee. Mm. E, right? I hear the letter name E. Mm. So children will recognize letter names that they write. And so they might write C and then they might add an E at the end because you've helped them see that. And that's a great representation of that word for them. That's bringing them forward rather than telling them that's not right. Here's the correct spelling. And this is how you should write the word. Right. Yeah. And I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not saying that teachers do that, but sometimes as teachers and sometimes as a teacher, I felt uncomfortable not giving the correct spelling to children. Mm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and because it's just a step in helping kids like be aware of the parts of a word or the individual phonemes of the word. Um, and that seems really natural. Right. And so I think as I think in helping teachers to continue to gain that um, that knowledge of how um, literacy, how writing, how, how reading, how this unfolds even early on, then you'll have understandings like, oh, the first sound they might hear, then it's the first and the last sound in a syllable. And then it's that middle sound. They won't get that middle medial vowel sound until they're starting to hear those other salient sounds, which is often the first and last sound in a single syllable word. Hmm. So often we think about, um, and I'm going to take a a tiny step back here, um, just to talk about the differences in expressive and receptive language. Um, And I think often we forget that um, receptive language, whether it's hearing or whether it's actually reading, it comes before the expressive language. I'm right on that, right? Yes, we generally can understand more than we can express. And that's true in our, um, in, in not only in our language, but also in our writing, for example. Yeah. And so it seems to me that as I'm hearing you talk about this pre-K age or this birth to age five um, sort of development process is that we have to make sure we get kids lots of examples and lots of exposures to be able to help with both sides of that scaffolding appropriately as we can. So yes, and both receptive and expressive vocabulary or language is really important in the early in the earliest years. In fact, um, research has found that they um, in the earliest years they don't even separate out, they don't necessarily separate out into those modalities as cleanly as we think about them. Really? Yeah. So um, they actually load onto the the same kind of construct early on. Hmm. And so, and same thing with language more broadly, it's often considered, uh, newer research has, has pointed to it being unidimensional uh, when children are very young. And um, so one thing that's really important is getting children to talk and getting them engaged in multi-turn conversations where the, where you are a responsive um, conversational partner with children and you encourage back and forth turns kind of like a, like a tennis match on the same topic, keeping the ball in play, you know? Um, so I, I think that there is a lot of talk sometimes in classrooms, but not necessarily a lot of conversation. Hmm. 
So too much teacher talk. Is that what you're sometimes I think <laughs> that as teachers, I know that I've had to check myself on that. Um, you know, how much should I be talking and then how much do I engage in conversation? And it's those conversational interactions where teachers and parents are modeling language for children without even realizing that they're doing it sometimes, but they're providing advanced language models. So for example, when my son says, I win the game, I say, oh, you won the game. That is so wonderful. So I changed his win, wind to yep. one without calling him out on it. I didn't say, don't say wind, it is one. Rather, I responded to the meaning of what he was saying and gave him an advanced language model. Um, the same thing in, ter in terms of talk related to making uh, children's um, utterances more complex. So you can add an idea or you can um, extend what they're saying and get the conversation, keep the conversation going. Um, so to, so for example, my, my child says, I win the game. Oh, you won the game. Tell me, how did you win the game? So I come back with an open-ended question that enables him to then invites him to take another turn and talk back and forth with me. And young children can do this, um, really well and are eager to, to, to engage. Hmm. I wonder how many, I'm, now I'm thinking back to when I was a parent and wondering what I did wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but wondering how do, how do caregivers, how do caregivers understand the importance of that? Like, where do they get this information? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there's, you know, there, in terms of, um, parents and, and, and raising our young children, um, there's a lot of innate information, innate ability that we have. So I don't want any parents to think, oh, I don't have what it takes or, you know, because you certainly do. However, yes. there has been a push to encourage parents to talk more with, uh, with their children. There's a lot of distractions around us. Um, and in early care settings, uh, including um, not only at home, but I mean, at, in, 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 in caregiving environments too, there is this push to make sure th that adults remember to talk with children, not just talk at children and not just talk to other adults in a room, but rather try to have conversation with children, even even when they're babies, they can take these turns with you where they're making a sound or they're making a movement and you can respond to those things. And when you do that, it does feel very natural to do those things. Um, another uh, technique when children are very young you can, and throughout the preschool period, you can narrate what you're doing or what you're doing with them. Um, mm -hmm. when you're everything from changing their diaper to, I remember when I used to load the dishwasher in front of my, um, infant son and I would say everything I was doing. I think my husband thought I was maybe a little bit kind of overdoing <laughs> it, but I tell you what, by seven months, I felt like he could understand everything I was talking about. So, um, there's this idea of, um, narrating or event casting what you're saying and what you're doing, um, to help that language. Um, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And then if we go back, uh, you know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about this, this idea of academic language. So now it's sort of all coming together. Why the importance of, of not just having conversations like that with children, but also reading, reading from, right. you know, picture books to them or reading from trade books for them, for, 
to get so that they get a chance to hear the academic language that's that's often more complicated in print than what we talk than the way we talk. Absolutely. And that's you know, if children need to have exposure to academic language words that are um, you know, by third grade, they need to know words like nutrients and spouted in a, on a on a test. Um, where are they going to hear those words if we don't read them out loud to children? Because our everyday conversations aren't going to necessarily have um, some of those kinds of words that we only see in written language. And there is a large body of experimental research that indicates that reading aloud to children has a positive impact on their language development. Um, and an important feature of that of doing that is its interactive nature. So yes, the book itself matters, but the way the adults engage children and in the talk that surrounds the experience, what we call the extra textual talk that goes beyond the text itself, um, that is valuable for children's um, language learning. Um, and if you think about the kinds of books you expose children to and the topics, uh, you can really think about bringing that knowledge piece in here too, mm -hmm. around yeah. the book reading and, t and have conversations about something. Yeah. Um, and that makes sense too, then as kids come into a more structured pre-K or kindergarten environment, that importance of not just a read aloud, but an interactive read aloud. That's right. So that practice continues on, you know, into those early grades and, and, and beyond into um, really helping children um, be explicitly exposed to vocabulary and meanings of words, words that are related to each other um, in both different genres of texts, including uh, not only narrative texts, but informational texts. Um, and you can easily think about um, integrating science and social studies instruction with the read aloud experience in ways that will be meaningful for children's development and will give them things that they're excited to talk about. Yeah, they like they, they like that. In my experience, at least they like to be scientists and historians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's a whole host of books, not just informational texts that are about something, right? Um, you can build tech coherent text sets that um, span different genre um, and that include narrative, informational, and then a mix of the two as well. So you don't have to just think, I only should read informational text. No, that's not true. Uh, you can t you can read a mix of texts. Um, I think one of the things is uh, that I aired on when I was a teacher is I always uh, I gravitated toward narrative texts, mm -hmm. um, stories, yeah, um, because I found them interesting, but also because there was that was the only thing kind of on my shelf for the to read aloud. And I think now teachers have access to so many different kinds of of books now, um, or can hopefully gain more access to informational texts than twenty. Um, years ago. Yeah, I agree with that because I, I do remember being in the classroom as, and as a third grade teacher and wanting to do some read alouds and just the quality of the informational text wasn't the same as what it is now for sure. Mm -hmm. And you know, some of the informational texts, um, one of the pushbacks about some of them is that they're really long. Yeah. Um, and what um, my colleagues and I have done in the past um, when we've used them both in our classrooms, but also um, as part of curricula that we were developing, 
is that we would shorten them um, and, and find ways to um, hit some of the highlights of the book without all of the details. Um, and you can find places to kind of shorten them so that they'll actually fit within the time schedule that you have. Oh, that makes a lot of sense because for K and one teachers, some of them can get, get really long, but yet kids are still interested in the topics. Right. The Gail Gibbons books, um, books by Gail Gibbons uh, mm -hmm. have been really popular in terms of informational text, but very long in the kindergarten setting, for example. So that was some of the texts that we have done that with. Hmm, that's a great idea. So, so sort of popping back here to, um, you know, that preschool experience or that birth to age five before the kids come into formal schooling, I can imagine that teachers that are listening are saying, okay, so I know this because I have kids that come to me in all different ranges of, of experiences when they come to school. How can I support that? diversity of, of, you know, experiences in terms of their richness. Yeah. And I think that, the, that, uh, that diversity comes in is really big in kindergarten, in the beginning of kindergarten, because children have uh, vastly different experiences sometimes prior to kindergarten entry. So you'll see everywhere, everything from the child who is um, um, just beginning to understand the print concepts and how writing works to children who are writing with invented spelling and reading words and, you know, the decoding is started. So that's a huge range. I think kindergarten is a particularly tough um, uh, time to meet children where they are in their development. Um, but I think having a good understanding of the development that happens before kindergarten is important. That is, how does um, both the word recognition and the language comprehension pieces, how do they develop uh, throughout the preschool period? Because children, even children who have had a lot of exposure to books and, um, and literacy activities may not pick up on them as easily as other children. So it's not just a matter of lack of exposure, um, but rather children are different, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, I think understanding development is important. What comes before uh, they, they get there typically and what comes what happens during and what comes after and seeing it development as a continuum versus everybody needs to start on exactly the same page because you'll have children coming in who know all the letters and, and letter sounds and you'll have children coming in knowing none of those. I think kindergarten teachers everywhere right now are raising a hand to celebrate what you just said <laughs> about the range of knowledge that kids in kindergarten come in with, because I don't think we, I don't think we affirm that or recognize that we talk about it, you know, when they get to third grade mm -hmm. or when they get to middle school, you know, you like, you have this range of learners, but frankly, it's at every grade level. Absolutely. And I think kindergarten teachers are heroes. I love kindergarten teachers okay. because they are getting children, you know, taking care of children's learning um, at a very early point in their development. And um, they, again, the rain, they're expected to do a lot during that kindergarten year. Um, and the range is so wide. Yeah, the range on both sides of the simple view, right? Like right. they're not just their understanding or readiness for word recognition, but really the language comprehension too. Absolutely, both sides. Mm -hmm. um, definitely they'll come in with different 
you know, different children will come in with different experiences and, and different knowledge and different, uh, that means that they know different vocabulary words. Um, some of them have a great deal of understanding when it comes to books and how they work. Um, and some of them um, won't have as much understanding. Um, so yeah, so. Um, I have I have a crazy question that just popped into my head and we <laughs> we didn't okay. talk about this one, so okay. <laughs> don't shoot me on this. I'm but here's nervous. the thing: <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, as you're starting to do research in this in this you know early grades world or this pre-KK world or even before that, what's the one thing that really surprised you? I think what really surprised me is also something that really encouraged me, which is young children are very smart they know a great deal more than we give them credit for and they can do a lot more than we understand you know so i think um to me um that's been you know when i focused in the early childhood period i'm always um amazed again and again by children and i think sometimes um Sometimes we don't give them credit for that. Hmm. That's really powerful because I have heard comments um, a lot of times from, you know, kindergarten and first grade teachers. Well, my kids could never read that by the end of this year or no, my kids just can't do that. And do you think it's because well, this is this is speculating here, but I'm going to say I'm guessing it's not because they they don't think they can do it. They're just having their heart on the protective side. Yeah, I don't think that teachers are trying to have low expectations for their children in their classrooms. Right. Uh, most teachers I know absolutely love the children in their classroom yes. and they want to serve them to the best of their ability. I just think that sometimes uh, as a teacher, I felt constrained um, by uh, my kind of conceptions of what children were capable of doing. Um, and so I think that one of the things that I would, um, you know, myself as a teacher, you know, right now I'm, I teach, um, you know, I'm a professor, so I teach at the college and doctoral levels. Um, but I still want to check myself about that and make sure that I have expectations for all the learners, regardless of where I think that they might be at the end of the year. Sometimes they do surprise you. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, if I'm finding that I have a lim kind of limiting thoughts around particular students' abilities, I need to check myself in terms of, um, no, they could, you know, they can do more than I think. And I think that young children are the same way. Not every, but you know, teachers are also realistic. There's still gonna be a variation at the end of the year. Yeah. Right? Um, but you know, I have seen examples of kindergarten classrooms, for example, where children were highly affected by their teacher. So for example, my, my now colleague, uh, Dr. Tricia Zucker from the University of Texas, um, she and I um, started out, uh, we met each other. I was a reading coach in Virginia and uh, worked with kindergarten through third grade students, I mean, through third grade uh, teachers and students. And um, 
and she was the best kindergarten teacher I'd ever seen. And <laughs> she always was the one saying, please come in my class and do model lessons for me. I need help. I need you to help me. And she was the person who needed kind of the least help. But that it's that kind of teacher that you want where they are always eager to seek out how to improve their practice. And so what I noticed in her class was that all of the students, all of the students, I mean, they came in in various spots, but all of them were readers by the end of the year. And some of them were way far ahead. And I could see, uh, I compared her classroom to other kindergarten classrooms. Um, and, uh, and was just that the, it was a clear difference because there was a clear difference in how she taught and, um, what she expected of every student. Hmm. It's a great shout out to her. So <laughs> I hope she's listening. <laughs> I'll make her listen. No, <laughs> well, it's clear you really have a passion for, um, for starting out strong in those early grades. And I just wonder as we, as we sort of wrap up a little bit, if you can talk a little bit about um, how you think COVID has impacted these kids, either in this birth through grade five or the early elementary grades, how are you thinking about that? Right. Um, I am worried about the impact of COVID on children's learning um, across all age ranges, you know, all this whole um, early childhood period for sure. Um, I'm, um, you know, there's, there are kind of reports out that um, speak to the potential exacerbation of disparities that already exist in children's achievement and those disparities being widened because of COVID um, and kind of the inequities being more pronounced. Um, and I, I am concerned um, about the stressors that have been placed on teachers. And I mean, all respect to teachers right now that are doing yeah. everything they can to help children and caregivers and parents because everybody has seemingly come together you know, to really, I think that one of the positive things in my view is that the benefits of um, education in terms of parents partnering with teachers, I'm hoping that this is going to be a positive benefit and more pronounced as we move forward that um, schools and teachers really partner with parents and vice versa to help um, children's learning move forward, maybe in ways that they hadn't before. Um, and so this has been such a stressful time and I am worried that, um, about widening gaps. Um, but I'm also encouraged that, um, the importance of education, um, has been heightened, um, awareness has been raised, um, yeah, so I think that there's good things and bad things. I, I think that the partnership between parents and, and, and schools and teachers, if that should come out of this, then that, that's a very, um, very important and, and good result. Yeah, I agree. It's the only in the best interest of the students to to make that partnership happen and and have better communication between them. Right, and really to realize that parents are children's first teachers. And right. so to really um, embrace parents in children's learning process is, is, is really critical. Hmm. 
Well, we thank you so much for your insight. It's always a pleasure to chat. Um, we thank you for helping make that uh, research easy to understand. Uh, it's just been an honor to have you on again, Sonia. Thank you. I've absolutely loved it. Thanks for listening and keep your feedback coming. Do you want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Visit Amplify.com to check out all our free literacy events and upcoming Science of Reading Symposium. Until next time, keep the hope, take the action, and stay in touch.